0: How many of you can navigate your own home in the dark? A few of you. Well, I'm impressed because I struggle. Uh, You know, it's probably a little different for folks in the age of cell phones. You've got that little light that you can take with you everywhere. But uh, you know, it's something that uh, I don't do very well. I wake up earlier than the rest of my family by a couple hours each morning. And it's a matter of habit and maybe Physiology as well, I just wake up early. Uh, but there's many times that I will stumble through the dark to make my way to start my day. And there was one time recently, it can be even worse if you're in an unfamiliar place, because we were camping, of course we had bags of things with different things in them, and there I am, awake, laying there, and I'm ready to start my day. And I realized that if I turn on any lights, that's gonna wake everyone up. So, so I'm like, okay, what can I find? To get the day started. And you know, you're feeling around in the dark and you cannot find a thing in the darkness. And certainly that imagery uh, is used in Scripture, right? The imagery of, even in, in literature uh, in general, but also in poetic sections of Scripture, of darkness and blindness. It, it evokes a lack of certainty, a lack of knowing the right way to go, moral blindness. In this passage in particular today, there is an element of moral blindness. But it also evokes a lack of awareness leading to fear or despair. Now, how often do we sin in ways that we don't even understand at the time? And people don't realize the damage that they may be doing... Right, the patterns are ignored. And when there's an escalation, we just justify and make excuses. And someone may even call it out. But we'll you know, just move along until it gets really bad. Right, that whole idea of somebody's going to get hurt. You may have experienced that or seen that. Even with kids on a playground. Right, we set ourselves up for pretending that the consequences will not come to us. And yet sin is really, um, can be subtle, it can be manipulative, it can go unnoticed even in our own hearts, our own minds. Right? James says, you, know, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So one thing that you want, one desire, leads to another, sin. And our idols do not go untended. And so the consequences of sin are real. In our own life, the real in the lives of those around us. And last time, in Isaiah 58... We saw how the Lord detests a false devotion and he calls his people to a genuine devotion that comes from a real covenantal relationship with him. And this week we're going to read about how the people have sinned. He, He comes back and points out the sin of the people again and how it has caused a separation between them and their God. But we'll also see them confess their sin And they'll also receive a promise. A promise from God that he will restore. And so the people of Israel, they had sinned. That was covered in detail in the last chapter, building up into this chapter. And now they confess their sin, but they still still feel around in the dark. Trying to find their way. And they don't know where to go. Salvation is far from them. They don't even know where to start to find their place. But what we find is that redemption does not come from their effort and action, right? In context, from the previous chapter, redemption does not come from the intensity of their prayers or their fasting. The Lord himself provides a redeemer for his people. And so redemption comes from the Lord. So what we're going to see this week is that they're condemned for their sin in the first eight verses, and then we're going to see that they confess their sin in the middle section, and then in the last section, God redeems and restores. So let's start at the beginning of chapter 59. The people are condemned for their sin. You could read along with me. In your few Bibles, that's page 618. Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands have... are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity your lips have spoken lies your tongue mutters wickedness no one enters suit justly and no one goes to law honestly they rely on empty pleas they speak lies they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity they hatch adder's eggs they weave the spider's web he who has Eats their eggs, dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and the deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. And the way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. And they have made their roads crooked. And no one treads on them, knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us. Right, back in Isaiah 58, in verse 3, we saw... Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Well, we actually see an answer to that here in this section. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But God does indeed hear. He does indeed see. But the consequences of their sin is that sin has separated them from their God. There's an underlying context. Based on their covenantal relationship with the Lord, Israel expected to be heard. But they misunderstood the obligations of that relationship. And In particular, you know, there's these markers of the Mosaic Covenant. right? The bottom line back in Chapter 58 was that they were unrepentant, right? That was the issue. And again, now we see this list of their sin that's laid out before them in the opening of this chapter. Now, some of you may recognize some of these phrases because Paul keys off of this passage in Romans chapter 3. He combines it with some psalms as he summarizes the condemnation that comes to all Mankind, all men and women, because of sin. Right? Romans 3.9 says, What are we to say then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are, are under sin, as it is written. There's no one righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, whose mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they do not know. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. So what Paul is doing here is he is clarifying that sin is so pervasive and so serious that we need a Redeemer. And we get to that here in Isaiah 59 as well. In verse 16, we'll come to that same conclusion. But there is something more to take from this in how Paul uses this passage. It'd be easy to assume that Paul is just using an extreme account of how sin has dominated humanity. But these Old Testament references, they're a poetic retelling of, of the sin of the people of Israel. We've talked about that the last few times and how uh, there is this, you know, uh, oppression of their own people. And now others come to oppress them and, and they, they want delivery from that oppression when they have oppressed their own people. What we need to take from this is the sinfulness of Sin. We too often think of sin as a minor offense. This is about more than shedding blood. Right? Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They speak lies. Right. What we may think of as, as a small sin is still sin. And Some people become so convinced of their own lies that they don't see them as the offense against the Lord that they are. Lies and shedding blood come from the same heart. And that is what Jesus was getting at in the Gospels, right? in the Sermon on the Mount. And that same heart produces anger, will produce murder. James points out the same contradiction. The good and evil would come from the same mouth, from the same tongue. Right? These sins of oppression of their own people might be considered by the world as unkind or lacking heart, harsh. And some in our own society would justify similar actions as necessary or even just. We ignore our sin, and then, if we're made aware of it, we rationalize it. We explain it away. We build a culture where it's acceptable. And we find reasons to say that it's not actually sin at all. Israel did it, and we do it. So we minimize our sin in our own minds. And when others call us out on it, we deflect and we self-justify. We hide our sin to avoid being called out. That's what we do naturally. But sin kills And Isaiah 59 testifies, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Paul goes on in in Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all may become accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Right, but people reply, I'm not that bad. It's just a small thing. We we call it a minor offense, but what does God call it? Paul further on in Romans 7 says, "so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful." John Owen famously said, "Be killing sin or be killing you." It's destructive in our lives. It's destructive in the lives of those around us. And This is not just some extreme list of sins. It's a retelling of how sin in general is indeed utterly sinful. And so understand the weight and gravity of your sin. Recognize it. Right? Recognize the effects of it in your life and how it impacts your relationship with God. And it destroys us. Be sensitive to that. There's a lot of talk here about the tongue, right? Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness, right? The idols of the heart pour forth in our speech and action. It reveals who we really are. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. The way of peace, they do not know. And so our thoughts drive our tongue. James knows this, with the tongue we bless the Lord the Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both ber- uh, blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water the tongue is a window into your heart. It shows you what's really there. And so verses 1 through 8 are an accusation against the people. They are in sin, but the people recognize and confess their sins starting in verse 9. There's a turn here. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. There's a lament, but notice that they, there's a shift from they to us. That first person recognition that it is our sin. This is the first step towards repentance. Right? We recognize that we are in sin and in a darkness We want righteousness and justice, but it is far away from us. And the consequences of our sin become clear in front of our eyes. Therefore, justice is far from us. In verse 10, we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We we hope for justice, but there's none. For salvation, but it is far from us. So, they're confused. They grope around like the blind. Some equate this with moral confusion, which may very well be the case. Is they're given over to their sin, they become morally corrupt. And they don't even know where to look to find their way out. They look in all the wrong places. They're lost, misdirected, confused. And they, even as they're confessing their sin, there's confusion. Verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Again, they repeat that they want justice. They look for salvation, but it is far away. And now they recognize that they have transgressed. Their sins do testify against them. verse 13, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. So And now their understanding becomes even more clear. They're guilty of what the Lord had charged them with. They admit their lying words. And they deny the Lord. They did not follow their God. And they lied from the heart. And now they see it. And yet they stumble in darkness recognizing your sin alone is not the full orb of repentance. It's just the recognition of your sin. It's that first step. It's just realizing what you've done. And now we see where this has brought them in verses 14 and 15. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The consequences of their sin... And there's a recognition that the situation has gotten to the point where there is no truth, and they lament this. Right? They lament their own corruption that has come to their whole society. So, how do we need to respond to this? How should they respond? Right? First, we need to be people who seek repentance. Repentance. Do we reflect on what we need to change in our lives? Are we willing to make those changes? Right? And we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Right? So that first step is reflection, recognizing the situation and how we've contributed to that, and considering God's ways and what he expects from us. Another thing we need to consider is that we need to be people of truth. Right? Truth was lacking here. Think of what a contrast this would be in our world. People frequently and clearly misrepresent others in our own society today. Why? Right? I, I just am reminded of customer service situations or even just seeing somebody in a store, and there's almost an assumption that the other person's going to be lying to you. Right? Don't let your, your, your position take precedence over truth. Even when somebody is on the other side, and they make a good point. I often hear people say, oh, what's their motivation? There must be some ulterior motive. Even if, if I agree with them. We assume evil intent. But we need to be people who seek truth first and foremost. We also need to be people who seek righteousness over expediency. Right? Too often, we accept unrighteousness if it gets us what we want. That, in a sense, had been their problem. That was one of the issues with their sin. But we need to have a higher standard than that. I've often heard people say that we can accept it if we win. That's just pragmatism. Yet people clothe it in spiritual language. So, what is your ultimate objective? Is it winning in a present context? Or is it following God? We need to be careful here. In Isaiah 59, the people had followed their own way to their own benefit. And they found that in the end, righteousness and justice were far from them. Isaiah 58 was the same. Who we are matters before God. And what kind of people will we be for, you know, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? To lose his soul. We look for short term gains at the expense of our souls. What is the basis of your ethics? Is it results? Or is it becoming a person who walks with God? Not saying you can't stand for something. I'm just saying, what is the center of your motivation? We grope for the walls. Like the blind, we grope like those who have no eyes. Justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. Right? Repentance from the heart sees our sin, detests what we've become, turns to the Lord for help, knowing that there's nowhere else where we can turn. So we need to seek that kind of repentance in our own lives, and we need to be people of truth. We need to be people who seek righteousness, But these will not come unless we see our sin as a personal offense against God. We need to see our sin for what it is. So confession and repentance are about reconciliation, and they don't make much sense until we see the situation clearly. So, we're not going to find redemption by doubling down in obstinance. So, what are some ways that we stumble in seeking this kind of repentance and restoration? First, we focus on the sins of others. As the world around us changes rapidly and our society turns away from the Lord, we want to see a massive movement of people returning to God. But how do you make that happen? The new covenant tells us it comes from hearts that are changed. Truth and righteousness come from the work of the Spirit in the lives of people. But there's this tendency to cut to the end. We want to win. What happens when our focus is on winning at all costs? We justify sin so that our side can win. We look past our own sins and we focus sharply on the sins of others. It means that we lose sight of who we become and we lose sight of the gospel. So you can't control the sins of others. You can lament, you can hold a higher standard for yourself, but that means actually dealing honestly with your own sin. Focus on what you can control. Recognize your sin as a personal offense against the Lord who created you. Second, we should focus on retribution, or we do focus on retribution, and forget about the promise of new life. So our world is increasingly a cold place, right? Right? Redemption is not offered generally. If somebody messes up, the consequences of those sins could be severe. And even an act of forgiveness is considered weak or maybe it's considered a cover-up or as cronyism. Consequences to sin, sometimes that's because of actual sin, sometimes it's because of being on the wrong side of the aisle from someone else. When the world has no room for forgiveness, think of how compelling the gospel message is. It's not just an offer of forgiveness. It is an offer of reconciliation and restoration. God is in the business of restoring lives, and that is part of the promise of new life in Christ. So third, we lack follow through. We actually see three scopes of reconciliation in Scripture. There's a judicial or positional aspect. We often talk about justification before God. There's also this experiential aspect of new life in Christ, what we sometimes refer to as sanctification. And there's also this future aspect of restoration and redemption that will come. God does not leave the task undone. He doesn't do one without the other. Salvation is a complete whole. And God will complete what he started. So what is wrong will be made right. We should see salvation in a holistic way. So if we're going to hold out hope before a dying world, let's make sure that we're people of hope, changed by the work of the Spirit, being molded into the image of Christ. So let's, let's close out this chapter from Isaiah, starting in verse 16. Finishing out verse 15, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the full armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. What is striking about this passage here? Who is putting on the armor? God is providing a redeemer who is clothed in God's armor. God's armor is the power for salvation. It's God's personal armor. When you read, put on the full armor of God, it's not just armor from God. It's it's his personal armor that you're putting on. That's the application that Paul's making in Ephesians 6. Right? So Ephesians says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's not just about finding strength in the Lord, it's recognizing that the Lord Himself is our strength. The Lord is our Redeemer. He is the one who defends us and fights for us and will bring salvation. And because of that, we can have confidence. When we are met with trials in this world. In verse 18: According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord. God is just in His judgment. The people respond in fear of His might. and The Redeemer will come to Zion. This is a Messianic promise. And then verse 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This section points to the restoration that will come from God. Paul references these verses in Romans 11 when talking about the future of Israel. And in the context of Isaiah, this is a messianic promise that despite the sin of the people, and despite God's righteous judgment that's upon them, the Lord himself will provide a redeemer. This is not about simply who is going to heaven. It's about the Lord going to battle. He is a warrior who will defend. He will stand in their place and protect them. And so all these promises are indicative, or indicative of the promises of the new covenant. Notice... This covenant includes two new elements here. Verses chapter 58, where we had these these markers of the Mosaic covenant of, of fasting, right? Here we have new markers of the covenant the Spirit of God and the Word of God that proceeds from their mouths. Notice how they were lying before, and now the Word of God Himself proceeds from their mouth. So they're given the Spirit and the Word. And These two markers you will find in other references to the New Covenant as well. So in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, so they're in contrast to those Mosaic Covenant markers of prayer and fasting or Sabbath keeping. But here in Isaiah 59, there's something new. The Redeemer will come to defend them. This is a different covenant. It's a new and better covenant. There's been a shift here in chapter 59. So we're going to do some reading here. I want you to hear the words of the new covenant from Jeremiah 31 and from Ezekiel 36. So if you could turn over to Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31. And it will be, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother saying, "Know the Lord, for they all will know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. So again, you have these two markers of the new covenant, this new hearts, which you, you may relate to the spirit coming. And then you have the, the precepts or the law of the Lord that's fulfilled in their lives, which is related to that word, the word that proceeds from their mouth. Let's go look at uh, also one other point is just that uh, Jeremiah 31 is applied to the church in Hebrews 8. Let's go look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give you of your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all uncleanliness. Okay. I'll read a little more. And I will summon the grain and make it abundantly so that there's no famine upon you. And I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer disgrace the famine among your nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. It's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded of your ways, O house of Israel. So here in Ezekiel, we have this heart of stone replaced by a heart of flesh by the Spirit. Again, a marker of the New Testament. It will be placed within the people, and he will redeem them for his own glory. There's also his statutes that they will fulfill from the heart. So in all three passages, Isaiah 59... Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, we see this offering of a new covenant, and God is the one doing the work. God accomplishes this through the Messiah, the Redeemer. And we see this emphasis placed on the Spirit and the Word. The Spirit brings the new heart. The new heart fulfills God's ways. So the Spirit bringing the new heart to follow the statutes of the Lord, this is something that's done naturally, organically in their lives from the heart. It's not contrived it's a restoration of the fullness of who they were created to be by God. It's a renewed heart. And so the word is the statutes of the Lord. And in the New Testament, we, we may call this related to the law of Christ, but this fulfilling of the will of God is a new people created for his glory. Right? He says, I will vindicate my, the holiness of my great name. It's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. So the Spirit is a means to bring about these changed hearts, and the Word is the rule of God for their lives, and the result is the people who follow God's rule from the heart. The rules are not these boundaries to stay within. Instead, they point straight at the center of God's will for their lives and who they are called to be as God's people. So covenantal relationship is established, but it's a new covenant by the Spirit and the Word. And we also see that God redeems by the work of the Messiah, Redeemer. In the midst of spiritual blindness, they confess their sin, yet they are still blind. God brings a Redeemer who establishes this new covenant. So in light of this, you you could just look at some New Testament passages. For instance, from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us confident to be ministers of a new covenant, not by the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Over in chapter 4, and even if our gospel... Actually, let's do verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So there's both this judicial aspect of the Redeemer. He has accomplished redemption for them. And there's also this renewal by the Spirit the sending of the Spirit of God to change people. And this is the Messianic promise. It's what Christ came to accomplish. Right? New life is a part of a new kingdom. And the result is restoration and a people who follow God's way, God's statute from the heart. And so we enter this new covenant by the work of this Redeemer and by the work of the Spirit of God who is making a new people for the glory of the Father. And yet, when we grope around in darkness looking for help, God is the one who sends a redeemer to stand in our place. Though guilty, his people stand justified in the sight of God. And though they have sinned, they will be made new by the work of the Spirit. And so Isaiah 59 starts with this recounting of the sin of the people. It then moves to focus on their confession of their sin and the recognition of their need for help, but it closes with this promise of redemption that is accomplished by God himself. He puts on armor to defend them. He will make a new covenant with them. And notice how this passage is used in the New Testament. In Romans, Paul uses it to point out the sinfulness of sin. In Ephesians, he points out how God's armor is used to defend his people. We also see New Covenant promises that are the foundation of our hope in Christ today. Is that your hope? This is good news. Right? The people had sinned against God and that sin was deceptive. and They didn't recognize it outright. They even considered it to be acceptable sin. But it was utterly sinful. And then they recognized their sin before God. They recognized their lack of sight even to perceive the right way. They were blind. Truth was lacking. What could they do? They confessed their sin, but they were not the ones who could make right what was wrong. And so righteousness was far off from them. But God is the one who brings a redeemer. And God is the one who makes a new covenant with them to bring about a real change in their lives. So do you see your own sin? Do you recognize your sin for what it is, an offense before your Creator? Do you confess your sin before the Lord? Know that you will not redeem yourself. Do you know that God is the one who brought a Redeemer, Christ the Lord? The Lord offers this new covenant relationship with Him. And the Lord sends His Spirit to bring this new life into your life. Right? So turn to Christ, our Redeemer, because there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your work in this world That you redeem a people for yourself, for your glory. And Lord, help us to recognize and to see our own state, our own need, and help us to turn to you, knowing that you are our only hope in life and death. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.